This evening's scripture comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 17. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. That's Ephesians 5, 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I certainly don't want to be disrespectful for and towards the sacred word of God, but I don't know about you. I, I, I have no qualms about writing in my Bible, in the margins of my Bible, underlining passages and putting definitions and all over the place. And I have a few verses in, in, in the New Testament in particular, why, while in the margin I have the letters YBH. I may have mentioned that to you before. I have that next to our text tonight, Ephesians 5.17, be not therefore unwise or don't be foolish, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. YBH simply stands for, yeah, but how? I think it's very easy for us to read a passage like that and all be in total agreement that we need to be understanding God's will. But when Paul was writing that in the first century and when we're reading in the 21st century, we need some, some practical help. We need some assistance in knowing how it is that we go about understanding God's will for our lives. Last Sunday night, we started a three-part lesson on how to discern the will of God. And for those of you that might not have been here, I'm going to do a brief review to catch you up so that you will at least know some of what we covered, but I'm not going to take very long in doing that. I started last Sunday night with a three-pronged proposition that goes like this. Your greatest desire should be to know the will of God. Your greatest delight should be to do the will of God. And your greatest danger in life is to fail to know God's will or having known it to fail to do it. And with those three propositions in mind, we talked about how to discern God's will in our life by debunking six myths that we talked about in the course of that study. I want to run, run through those briefly, not only for review of those who were here, but also for the sake of those who weren't. We talked about the MAP myth, that's M-A-P myth, and that is that God will de de uh, supply you a detailed, intricate, specific roadmap to guide your life, that you're never going to have to worry again that you don't have to worry about the application of Ephesians 5.17 because God's going to supply that for you. He's going to tell you when to turn right and turn left. It's just like a, a celestial GPS, and, and, and that's simply not true. And I think those of you who've been Christians for some period of time, and maybe even if you're a brand-new Christian, you understand that that isn't how God's divine guidance works. We also talked about the misery myth. That is, if you choose to follow the will of God in your life, you're going to wind up in some third-world country absolutely miserable. It's the idea that God's will for you is always painful. Well, that too, I remind you, is a myth. Myth number three is the missionary myth. It's the idea that God's will is for a specific group of people. It may be for preachers and for missionaries, but it's not for the average person, the rank and file who sits in the pews in the congregations of the Lord's people. And then there's a miracle myth. Maybe this one is more well-known or at least more widespread. The idea that you've got to have some dramatic sign there's got to be some voice, some still small impulse in the middle of the night for you to understand the will of God. Now, it's no surprise that the charismatics among us are really, really buy into this concept that there's got to be some kind of miraculous, miraculous sign, some kind of miraculous or at least mysterious leading in our life. And that, of course, is the, then the, the mystic myth, the idea that God had a will for your life early on. But if you failed to, to catch on to what that was early in your life, Guess what? You're out of luck. There's nothing that you can do to serve God and to fulfill his will in your life at this point. 
Now, let me add this because that is so egregiously wrong. I, I simply have to say again tonight, it is never too late at any point in your life to learn and to do the will of God. If you're still breathing, then you can know God's will, you can do God's will, let me assure you. And we're going to be looking at some passages tonight that simply reaffirm that. And then the last myth that we looked at is the mystery myth. It's somewhat like the idea that God's will is a mystery. It's sort of like an Easter egg hunt. And uh, God says to you, there's something that I want you to do. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Uh, but you spend the rest of your natural life searching and seeking and trying to find what that will is. And you better not miss it. You can imagine how frustrating that is. If you've gone through the balance of your Christian life and you still haven't determined what God's will is, then that means that God is some kind of celestial prankster that is kind of playing a game of hide and seek with you. The Bible doesn't teach that. It doesn't suggest it in any place. We, we spent some time clearing up those myths, but tonight I want us to look at some propositions, some principles, and if you want to turn in your Bible to Acts the ninth chapter, I think I mentioned this at the end of the lesson last Sunday night. We want to spend this time, as we did last Sunday night, looking at the account of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus in Acts the ninth chapter. And we drew a couple of principles from that account last Sunday night in our study. But tonight I really want us to lock in on what happened to Saul on the road to Damascus and to learn some things about, at least in general principles, how that we can ascertain and discern the will of God for our lives. Let's go ahead and get to the principles. Principle number one is that in Acts 9, in our lives as well, guidance is promised. You'll notice the promise that was made to Saul in Acts 9, I think it's verse 6, where he said, Arise, uh, that is on the heels of Saul's question, Lord, what would you have me to do? In verse 6 he says, Arise and go into the city, and there it will be told you what you must do. Now, you're probably thinking at this point, if you're thinking ahead at all, how simple that sounds. If you can just find the right city and go into the city limits, then you'll have it made just like Saul did. All you got to do is just find the right city. You'll ascertain God's will. Well, obviously, if you're looking closely and discerning carefully as you read this passage, you know that the typical first reaction is, well, but that was a promise that was made to Saul long ago. That's not necessarily a promise made to me. And hermeneutically speaking, you would be exactly right about that. Just because a promise is given in the Bible does not mean that we are to be recipients of that promise. For example, the Lord just before he left this earth and descended into heaven, told his apostles, now you wait in Jerusalem and you'll be endued with power from on high. That's a promise. But it's a promise given to a select group of men for a specific period of time and for a very special purpose. And so you're right. Not all promises in Scripture can be made to apply to everybody, including ourselves. So let me give you some passages that do apply to us and that we also need to consider as we're thinking about the will of God. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, Paul says this to the, the Ephesian Christians, for we are his workmanship. Now, you don't have to think long to understand what Paul means by that. That is, God has crafted us, not just physically, he is the creator of everyone that occupies this planet, but more specifically and more especially, God has crafted us in his image in a spiritual way. And if we are his children, and assuming that Paul is writing to the Ephesian Christians, then he was writing to those who are already children of God. He wanted them to know that God has, in a very specific way, crafted you. He has created you. He has molded you. He has shaped you. 
And then he goes on to say, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now it's not only interesting to see what it is, the purpose behind this craftsmanship that Paul is talking about, but also the timeline. What, when God did this is also interesting. This verse is telling us, again, that we're God's workmanship. That is, we've been saved by God's grace. Verses 8 through 10 tells us, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which, watch this carefully, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The King James actually says, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, we need to watch that closely. God has a plan ordained for us before it ever comes to pass in reality. Is there a plan for everyone's life? Yes, generally speaking. Has God worked out the specific minutia? Again, has he given us a very detailed roadmap that will tell us what move to make next? No. But he does have a plan for our lives. I've often said from this pulpit as well as others that there is something that you can do in kingdom service that no one else can do to the same degree and with the same level of proficiency and effectiveness as you can. God does have a plan for your life. Ira North's autobiography was entitled, Every Life, a Plan of God. He believed that, I believe that. But that doesn't mean that God has a detailed GPS, a celestial GPS for every one of us. We understand that as well. So God has a plan ordained even before it comes to pass in reality. Here's another, Psalm 37 and verse 23. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Get that. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. That is, the good man is going to appreciate and find joy in the way that God has directed his steps. Ask me how he does that. I'd have to say I don't know. But I do know that he does because we have God's word on the matter. Good order, God orders our steps, and we live the Christian life. We walk the Christian walk one step at a time. I know that's God's will for you, and that's certainly God's will for me. Here's another passage, also from the psalm, Psalm 32, verse 8. This time, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Now, the first part of that is pretty easy for us to unravel. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. This book really is an owner's manual. It really does tell us how to live our lives, and it's been pointed out in many a Bible class that while the first four books of the New Testament are biographical in nature, telling us about the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of our Lord, the book of Acts, someone has pointed out, is, by the way, not entitled The Good Intentions of the Apostles, but rather The Acts of the Apostles. So it tells us how the church, the the spiritual kingdom of Christ began, And how men and women were added to it. And the eight accounts of of conversion that we find in scripture are given to us in the book of Acts, which is sometimes called the book of conversions. Now that's only five books. The balance of the New Testament is designed to do what? Help us to live the Christian life. Help us to get from point A to point B in our lives. To grow to spiritual maturity. To be everything that God would have us to be. To serve him as effectively as we possibly can in the limited time that we have here on planet earth. So the first part of that is pretty easy to understand. But the second part is a little more difficult. And I will guide you with my eye. What does that mean? I I think back immediately to my growing up days. When my dad would be in the pulpit preaching, I would be in the second or third pew back, and uh, 
if I misbehave, my dad would never, he never called me out. He never stopped and said anything to me, but he would guide me with his eye. <laughs> May I add, his evil eye, or depending on what version you're reading from, his stink eye. And I would get the message immediately. Never had to stop the lesson, never had to say a word directly to me, but he could look at me with his eye, and the message was clear. If you don't straighten up, you're going to get it when you get home. I still remember those days, even though I was in my early 20s at the time, but that's not important. <laughs> or, or maybe maybe you're a husband, and you're in a social situation, you're socializing with friends, and the conversation begins, and you broach a subject, and your wife gives you that special look that says, don't go there. That's guiding you with their eye. It's wonderful, folks, that we can have that same kind of close and intimate relationship with a God who guides us with his eye. He not only directs our steps, but he continues to guide us in our earthly sojourn. Think of some other general promises that are supplied in Scripture. For example, Isaiah 58, verse 11, the Lord will guide you continually. And obviously, we could make this list almost infinitely long, but just one more. One of my favorites that we used as our text last Sunday night is Proverbs 3 and verse 6, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Isn't that a wonderful promise? I mean, that, that's something that you can take to your spiritual bank for immediate deposit. Although, in the specific sense, we can't expect, just like Saul, to go into the city and expect it to be told us what exactly we need to do with the rest of our lives, I, I think there is, however, a general application that we can draw from Acts 9. I thank God that there are similar promises to his people in other places of Scripture as well. We know from Scripture that we have a Father above us who's controlling all things according to his ultimate will. We have a Savior beside us who is directing our steps through the intermediacy of his written word. It's the same Savior who said, If you abide in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. John chapter 8 and verses 31 and 32. We have a Holy Spirit within us, as we looked at a few Sunday nights ago, energizing and pressing our hearts, our minds, our wills, and as Paul said, strengthening us in the inner man. Having said that about the guidance and God's will being promised, there's some things specifically about God's will. Three things I want to mention before we move on to the next pr principle. First, there is God's prevailing will. This is, depending on the literature that you're reading, sometimes referred to as God's ultimate will. For the purposes of this study, I want us to consider it as the prevailing will of God. That means there is God's overarching, sovereign, or prevailing will. God's will, listen carefully, God's will can never be ultimately thwarted. God's will will be done. And all those who disbelieve in God and rail against him, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. God's will cannot be thwarted. It's much like a river that runs to the sea. You can dam it up, the river will run around the dam, and it will continue its course toward the sea. That's God's will. No matter what you say, what you do, what you think, God's sovereign will is going to be done. There are constant affirmations and reaffirmations in Scripture to that effect. Not a blade of grass moves without his controlling power. Not a raindrop falls, but that he is over it all. And we need to understand that because that's going to inform our worldview and our understanding of the will of God. 
Solomon says this in Proverbs 19 and verse 21. There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. If you want, to, if you want something for your spiritual bank, Solomon says, it's the will of God. That's what's going to stand the test of time and eternity. But the second thing about the will of God is that there is God's permissive will, not just his prevailing will, but there's also God's permissive will. For example, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter says the Lord is not willing, at the end of that verse at least, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You don't have to guess about what God's permissive will is in that passage because Peter spells it out. It's that everyone would come to the point of repentance in their lives and then seek to do his will for the rest of their lives. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8. Again, there are other similar and a plethora of passages along those lines that indicate what God's permissive will is. So that's God's permissive will. But not everybody subscribes to God's permissive will. I've said this in a, in a lesson years ago, but I want to say it again because it bears repeating within the framework of this discussion. If I believed everything that happened on this sin-cursed earth was the will of God, I couldn't believe in God at all. Not everything that happens clearly is the will of God. But God allows man his free agency. We oftentimes violate his will. We suffer the consequences, and sometimes we suffer consequences of poor choices that someone else has made. And our first reaction might be, but that's not fair. You're exactly right. But we live in a sin-cursed earth. And Paul, in the book of Romans in particular, talked about how that while one, through one man sin entered a human experience, we are blessed and honored to know that through one man sin can also exit our lives. Because Jesus Christ came and died for us through the work, the redemptive work of one person, every one of us can stand in a right relationship with the God who made us. Again, this is God's permissive will. God in his sovereignty has granted to man that free will that he may always choose to disobey God if that's what he or she desires. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19 says this. You'll find similar admonitions in the Old Testament to this one. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, Moses writes, that I have set before you life and death. Boy, you talk about a crossroad. You talk about a choice to make. But when you get into the passage, you realize that he's not talking so much about physical life and death. He's talking about spiritual life and death because here's how he ends the statement. I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. The acknowledgement, the implication of that passage is that every person that God ever created is a free moral agent. And we can do what God wants us to do. We can live the way God wants us to live. Or we can turn our back on him and reject him and refuse to do his will at all. But Moses is pleading with his people and saying, please, when you make that decision, when you stand at the fork, the crossroads of life, choose life. Choose blessing. Live the way God would have you to live. Here's a third characteristic of the will of God we need to mention before we get to the second principle. And that is, there's God's personal will. God has a will for each one of us. We've touched on that already tonight. He has plans for his people. Again, I mentioned a moment ago, Ira North's 
autobiography entitled Every Life a Plant of God. That kind of encapsulates what I'm trying to communicate here. That also means that God is interested in each individual. Don't miss that. And he knows each one of us by name. Now, I know you knew, knew that already. And so I, it wasn't my attempt by making that statement to tell you something that would be so profound and so unheard of that you would gasp and go, I never knew that. No, we all know that God knows all of us by name. But do we fully appreciate that relationship and the intimacy that that implies? He knows your middle name. I have oftentimes, at least in some hospitals, the protocol is to put a person's full name on that little information sheet on the door that's posted outside. And if I know a, a brother or sister that I'm visiting well enough, I will tease them about their middle name. And sometimes it's, it's wild and crazy, and usually the response is, well, what have you got to brag about, Jeffrey? Uh, you know, and, and so we, we enjoy that, that level. I, I never knew that that was your middle name before. God knows our names. He knows us on a very personal level. And when we're considering the will of God, we've got to realize that when we're looking at his personal will, that that means that in every area of our life, God directs our steps. And he does not direct you exactly the way he does the person at the other end of the pew. In fact, Matthew 10, 30 reminds us, as Jesus did those early disciples, that the very hairs of your head are all numbered. That is the level of intimacy that God knows his children. Remember the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. We looked at in Psalm 37 verse 23. So God has a plan for my life. He has a plan for your life, for everyone's life. But we as agents of free will can choose to follow that plan or we can reject it because we have that option. Let me sum it up this way. It's God's prevailing will that the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Or as we noted a moment ago from 2 Peter 3, 9, that all men should come to repentance. All men should be saved, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. God wants every person to do his will and to be saved in eternity. It was God's permissive will that we all make right choices in our lives. But sadly, as you and I know, in our own personal experiences, that many times we do not make right choices, and that's why we so desperately need that Savior that we talked about at length this morning. I believe, if I may per be per very personal for a moment, I believe it was God's personal will that I marry Mia. Now, some may want to debate that, but I'd be happy to debate you on that point. You see, I believe that it was God's providence that brought Mia to me and me to Mia. I can remember when I would walk her to the dorm at curfew. Young people, are you listening? At curfew, never after curfew. When I would walk her to the door at curfew and all the way back to the dorm, I would be praying, dear God, let me marry that girl. And he did. And you may be saying, but when you talk about God's providence, you can't prove his providence except from the perspective of eternity when you see how everything turns out in the ultimate. And you're exactly right. You can't prove it, but you sure can suspect it. And I suspect God's providence in many areas of our life that will only be proven from the perspective of eternity. You see, God's word teaches us that in some ways God orders our steps, and, and that within itself is amazing. 
in some ways that it's like the President of the United States being interested in a barnacle on a piece of driftwood out somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean for God to be interested in us, but he is. In fact, in that great Psalm 8 where the psalmist begins, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Down in verse 4, he says, What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? And that's a good question, isn't it? Why would God be interested in me? Why would he be interested in us? We're so insignificant. We're just a small cog in the machine. Think for a moment. We, we know from the model prayer that our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Or as a little boy prayed, Father in heaven, how'd you know my name? <laughs> a- a- and we wonder that. Well, he does. He knows your name. You're not an accident. You're not an incident to the God who created this universe. God deals with every one of us as individuals. And I want us to appreciate that and to reaffirm that quickly. Then that brings us back to principle number two, and this is not going to take much time at all. Don't worry. God's guidance is provisional. Not only is it promised, as it was to Saul, go into the city. There it will be told you what you need to do. But it's also provisional. That is his guidance is provisional. There are some biblical provisions if we would really know God's will in our life. Let me mention those quickly. First, there must be willingness. There must be willingness. You must be willing to know God's will. I think that just passes the common sense test, doesn't it? Remember what Saul said in Acts 9, 6, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? Are you really willing to do the will of God once you find out what it is? So somewhere in this process, if we have convinced ourselves that I really want to do God's will, then we need to ask ourselves, do I have the carry through? Do I have the commitment to continue doing that for the rest of my days? And I'm not just talking about confessing Jesus as God's son and being immersed in water, although that is the beginning stage. And that's where the real adventure begins. But am I willing to commit for the rest of my life? Are you willing to do God's will once you know what it is? If not, then you're probably never ever going to know it. That's just common sense and, and, and Bible teaching. Jesus said, for example, in John 7, 17, if you want some Bible to back that up, he says, if anyone wills, that's the King James, some versions say, actually, if anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Doesn't the reverse of that also apply? If we don't want to know his will, then we'll never know it. Sometimes people want to build a house. They already have the kind of house in mind that they want. That's not at all uncommon. In fact, I would recommend you have some kind of house in mind before it starts being built. And, and maybe they're, they've drawn it on a piece of paper, just a, a, a real rough diagram of the kind of house sitting at the kitchen table that they want. And, and then maybe they go in the next stage and get an architect. And, and what they're asking the architect to do is not to design that house from scratch to just, okay, we want you to design this forest from the foundation up. They already have in mind what they want. And they're saying, this is the kind of house I want. This is what I want. Now, you go and design it. That works well that way when it comes to building houses and dealing with architects. But the problem is, I'm afraid, sometimes we want to do the same thing with the will of God. We say, Lord, here is what I want for my life. Now, God, you go and design me a pattern, a plan that goes along with what I already have in mind. We're really just asking God at that point to superimpose his will or our will for his will. That's all we're doing. I heard about a vagabond who spent his entire life walking across the country from one end to the other. And somebody asked him, how do you decide? Every day when you get up, how do you decide which way you're going to go? If you have no destination in your mind, you're just meandering around the country. How do you know? And he said, it doesn't really make any difference to me. 
I just get up, and as long as they're rode in front of me, I keep walking and I keep wandering. And then they said, well, what do you do if you're walking down the road and you come to a fork in the road? How do you determine at the fork in the road if you're going to go to the right or the left? That seems to me like a legitimate question. And he said, that's simple. I just pick up a stick, and I throw it up in the air, and whichever way it lands and points, that's the way I go. And then he said, you know, sometimes I have to throw it up six or seven times for it to land right. And we can easily do that with God's plan for our life as well. That's like that old story that's been around for ages about the preacher who was in a very unpleasant situation in the current place where he was preaching and life was miserable for him and his family. Another congregation elsewhere expressed interest in him coming and preaching for them. And when someone came to visit them one afternoon, the door was answered by the little girl and the family. And the visitor said, where's your folks? And she said, well, dad's downstairs praying for the will of God. Mom's upstairs packing. And sometimes we do that, don't we? We get a leg up on God's will. We're praying for God's will, but we already got in mind what we're, want, we're wanting to do. So we need to ask ourselves, are we really willing? Do I really sincerely want the will of God for my life? There must be a willingness. Second, there must also be a meekness. A meekness. Notice in Acts 9, verse 8, after Saul had met the Lord on the road to Damascus, the Bible says, then Saul arose from the ground. You've got to look closely at this church to really appreciate the point that I'm seeking to make from verse 8. And when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. When I was a small child, it was not uncommon if I were in the company of either my mother or my father, and we were about to cross a road, especially if we were doing so in a downtown city area, for them to grab me by the hand and make sure I made it across safely. But that indicates something on their part, love and concern, but also something on my part, that is, I am willing to be led by the hand. I wonder if you're an adult, especially if you're a senior citizen, how long has it been since somebody led you by the hand? You may be thinking, well, as I've gotten older, more, more and more that happens. But again, it's ind indicative of a meekness that you are willing to be led. I say that the same thing is true of Saul of Tarsus. Here's a man who had the equivalent of three PhDs, and yet he's willing to be led by the hand as these men are leading him back into the city. It's obvious that this once proud and arrogant Pharisee was now meek in spirit, more than happy for someone to lead him by the hand. The Bible says in Psalm 25, verse 9, the King James at least, the meek he will guide. That means teachable and a person who has a broken spirit. In the olden days when the cowboys would take a wild stallion and break him, my understanding is they would call that making him meek. That is, simply they did not cripple him. They wanted him to keep his strength. They wanted him to still have his fire and speed. But they wanted to be able to put a saddle and a bridle on that horse so that they could put all of that power to good use by bringing it under control. And I'm wondering tonight, has God been able to put a saddle and a bridle on you? Are you meek enough to accept God's leading and direction and breaking of you in your life? Is Jesus truly not only your Savior, but also your Lord and your Master? Are you meek and, and teachable? You know, many a boy or a girl at the reaching the age of 16 is dropped out of school. And usually what you hear from their lips is, they can't teach me anything down there. And if that's a person's attitude, then almost 100% of the time they're going to be right about that. They can't teach them anything because he doesn't have a teachable spirit. Third, there must be openness. Saul asked the Lord, what? Do you want me to do? Notice the open-ended nature of that question. And his words were, I'm open. 
He doesn't say, now, Lord, this is the way and what I want to do. Now, you help me do it. He's just open to God's leading. You see, God will instruct and guide, and he will direct, but we must be willing to listen to his voice. And that's all the more reason for us to report for duty in the morning, every morning. Let me ask you, do you have a quiet time? Is God leading you through his word? Is he answering your prayer for his direction? Are you ever still and quiet long enough in your life to think about what it is that Scripture has said and how it has instructed you to live your life that day and to do God's will during the next 24-hour period? If we're so inundated by all the hubbub and the noise of what's going on around us and we're not going to take the time to really meditate on what God actually wants us to be doing with our lives. And that's why all of us need a quiet time each day that we can spend in the study of, of the owner's manual and in praying in faith that God will lead us in the direction that he will have us to go and that he will, in fact, in the words of Solomon, direct our steps. We don't need to ever have the attitude, listen, Lord, your servant speaks. We need to have the attitude of speak, Lord, your servant listens. And then finally, there's yieldedness. Now, that may sound like some of the other qualities we've discussed, but I assure you that there is some difference. You and I must yield to the will of God in our lives. It's not enough to know the will of God. We've said that over and over, yet it's easy to have the attitude, if I just knew God's will, I would have it made. No, you wouldn't. I ignore my GPS all the time. You have to then say, Lord, I am ready to do your will. Listen to this part of our text, and then we're through. Acts 9, verses 8 through 11, and then we're skipped down to verse 17. Then Saul arose from the ground. When his eyes were opened, he saw no one. They led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And so the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. Let me stop and ask, how would you like to have gotten that visitation assignment? But he accepts it. He has some misgivings, Scripture says, but he still accepts going to the foremost persecutor of Christians and accepting that visitation card. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, that is on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has, as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm suggesting that in this episode we learn that God sent a messenger to Saul to instruct him. This man named Ananias had learned from God that Saul was going to be a vessel to spread the gospel to the entire world, especially to the Gentiles. Now to read this story is to see this proud Pharisee, Saul, now completely yielding himself to the will of a little-known disciple by the name of Ananias. I'm suggesting that that's what I mean by yieldedness. If you're not willing to yield to the will of God, why should God ever bother to show it to you? Imagine a man who comes into a service station with an old car. I mean, it's a beater. It's a clunker. All four tires are flat. The fenders are all banged in. There's no water or coolant in the radiator. There's no oil in the crank case. The gas tank is rusted through. It's just a wreck. And so he has to push it up to the pump. And he tells the attendant, ask your parents what that is. He tells the station attendant, fill her up. Well, the guy looks at the car and he says, what? And he said, I said, fill her up. And the attendant then asks the next logical question, what for? We may say, God, show me your will. And God may ask, 
What for? What for if you're not yielded? If you're not ready to do the will of God, why? Why would God ever want to show it to you? Would you be willing, yielded enough to sign the contract and at the bottom say, now God, you fill in the details. Would you be willing to sign a blank check and let God fill in the amount later? You see, if you take all of these things together, you're going to know the will of God for your life. But you may be saying, wait a minute, I can't sign a contract until I've read it. Well, in the business world, that just makes good sense. But you see, with God and his will, a large part of what we are talking about on these Sunday nights is the matter of trust. Remember that Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, that you may, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I hope you got that last part. You may not know what God's will is when you first become a Christian. And when you first sign that contract of a lifelong commitment, I'm going to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. But I can tell you with confidence born of inspiration that God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. God has promised us that. He's not only got a will for your life, he has a wonderful will. What God has in store for us is literally out of this world. And I suggest that if you're not a Christian tonight, you ought to become one, not just because of the eternal repercussions of that decision, but because God wants you to live the best life possible right here, right now, while we stand, while we sing.